Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys all spry and ready to go this morning, enjoying your summer, hopefully, and here to open up the Word of God together. I do just want to say how thankful I am for this church and for you guys. I, Shay, I was just saying to Shay this, this morning, I said, pastors need Sunday morning too, okay? Pastors need Sunday morning too. Uh, we don't need Monday mornings or Friday or Saturday. We need Sunday mornings because it's a time to worship with our church family and to be with you guys and to hear you sing such amazing songs like that and to hear reports of how, how the youth group uh, did and, and uh, uh, how the, the time and the retreat was away and then just to stand up here and, and see you guys fellowship with one another. Uh, these are all encouraging times and uh, encouraging for me. And so uh, Sunday mornings are my favorite in the entire week. I mean that. I wake up on Saturday just like I do on Monday. I, it's just Every day I wake up at the same time, but on Sundays I wake up with a joy and excitement to be with my church family. And so uh, one of the highlights of that is digging into the Word of God. And so if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We are continuing the study on false prophets and false teachers. If this is your first Sunday here, or second Sunday, and uh, you're still kind of figuring out what our church does is uh, when it comes to the preaching of God's Word, we just take uh, the, a, a book of the Bible and we study it uh, verse by verse, section by section, and whatever the Lord has for us next, that's what we talk about. And there's been an entire chapter dedicated to false teachers, and so we're spending time in this section about false teachers, and it's, it hasn't been uh, a nice, easy uh, time in this word of God. In the word of God, and they say it's been heavy lifting. Okay, it, it's been heavy lifting, and uh, these aren't the messages where you go home with nice, warm fuzzies and goosebumps on your neck and and all those things. Um, you kind of go home going, "Wow, God cares a lot about truth. God cares a lot about His holiness, and He is willing to judge those who lead people astray." That's kind of the feeling you get when you leave, and then you're thankful for Christ and the cross, and that you're in Him uh, because you have eternal life to look forward to. All right, let's close in prayer. Uh, that was my message for this morning, and uh, we'll be done. You can go outside and enjoy the weather. No, let me, uh, let me just pray for us, and then we'll, we'll see um, what the Lord has for us in the, the final verses here of, of chapter 2. Let me read. 2 Peter 2, verse Ten, and especially those who indulge in the lust of the, of the defying passion, despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a ju blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Speaking of these false teachers, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which... They are ignorant, will also be destroyed in destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the, the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own discretion. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. 
For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, so that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteous after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. and The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Heavenly Father, these are important truths for today. To be reminded that there are those who are deceiving the church, deceiving the world, into thinking that their way, their way of heresy, their way of a false gospel is the true gospel. Lord, give us discernment. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning to know and understand the truth in deeper and greater ways so that we'd be able to discern a false prophet and a false teacher when we hear one. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, the Apostle Peter has now written his second letter. He has come to the end of his life. He will soon be sacrificed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And church history tells us that he will be crucified upside down. And as Peter would take out his scroll and he would take his, 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 his pen, he would dip it in the, the inkwell and he would, he would write out this letter, writing it out to fellow persecuted Christian Christians, Peter doesn't have time for a self-help message. Peter doesn't have time to write a letter to tickle ears. Peter doesn't have time to write a letter that is going to entertain the readers. Peter doesn't have time for story time with Peter. He doesn't even consider our feelings. Instead, he just gives us the truth. With urgency and with clarity, he reminds us that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation in verses 1 and 2. With great urgency and clarity, he reminds us of the sufficiency that is in Christ alone and the sufficiency of Scripture. He reminds us that there is a perfect pattern of growth in the Christian life. He gives us also the reminder in, in chapter 1, in verse 20 and 21, that, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, that, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that the Word of God is the inspired, God-breathed, holy Word. Peter has been, has been crucified or has been persecuted for his faith. Peter is watching and hearing other Christians being persecuted at the hands of Emperor Nero. And Peter, as he writes this, this letter out, he doesn't mince word and he doesn't waste a sentence. Rather, he aggressively and pointedly attacks the false teachers. He exposes their, their true character and their final condemnation. And as we read chapter 2, as we just kind of look over it, as we kind of pull back a little bit, and just, just take chapter 2 out for a second, we should view this chapter as a spiritual father 
warning his children that there are those who are out to deceive you, to lure you away, and to entice you away from the truth. He wants us to understand that there are charlatans out there. There are frauds. There are those who are out for your money, out for your approval. They are greedy for gain, and you must not follow them. Imagine if your children were being played by a false teacher. Imagine if your little ones were were being played by a charlatan. Would you not be aggressive in wanting to make sure they understand the true character of a false teacher and a false prophet? Would you not want to let them know of the dangers to the degree, as Peter does, to even say these false teachers are like irrational animals? They are creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Would you not want to warn them? And this is what Peter does. Peter's not out to try to win win friends right now. He's certainly not trying to get this letter published in the Reader's Digest, the Seattle Times, or Christianity Today. It's far too offensive. If Peter wanted a following, if Peter wanted friends... He would have wrote a letter on how to have a better life, how to make every day a Friday, how to win friends and influence people. He would have written a letter with articles on the culture. He would have written a letter on happiness. He would have written a letter on marriage. He would have written a letter on how to handle your finances, how to declutter your home, how to save. There's all kinds of things he could have done to write a letter to to gain a following, but Peter doesn't have time for that. False teachers are out there. They're coming after you. They're coming after your family. And in God's kindness, listen, in God's kindness and in God's grace, we have a chapter in our Bible dedicated to warning us that there will always be false prophets and false teachers out there who are trying to lure you away. This chapter is a chapter of grace in your life. Don't think for a second that you don't need to be warned. We all need to be warned. We all need to be reminded that God defends his holiness, that God defends the truth, that God defends the purity of scripture and the way that he defends it is he reminds us that those who are false teachers and false prophets will be destroyed, will be judged. So we can take encouragement here that we're not the only ones fighting the good fight of faith. We can be reminded here that God will judge those who are false teachers and false prophets And also, as we talked about last week, at the end of last week, that according to verse 9, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That God is in the business of saving. That God is in the business of rescuing. So Peter writes this second letter here. So we wouldn't be naive, so that we wouldn't be vulnerable. He goes hard after the false teachers. Not for us to be critical of them. 
but for us to be careful and for us to know our surroundings. And so here's the features that he's given to us. Number one was this, their arrival is assured. Number two is this, their strategy is subtle. Number three, their doctrine is destructive. Number four, their pattern is popular. Number five, their ministry is maligning. Number six, their purpose is profit. Number seven, their penalty is pending. And we left off there with that one, their penalty is pending. As it says there in verses, end of, uh, end of three, all the way down into verse 10, it talks about the penalty that is coming for those who deceive and lure people away. There's four more this morning. We're going to get through all of them. It will be a July miracle, uh, but we will do it and finish off the chapter. Number eight is this. When it comes to the features of a false teacher, it's this. Their character is condemning. Their character is condemning. Look at what it says. The second half of verse 10, even, even verse 10, you could add to this. It says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Bold and willful. These false teachers are not humble. There is arrogance. There is conceit. It's reflected in their actions as they are not afraid to slander the glorious one. They're not afraid, as it says there, to, to blaspheme the glorious ones. They do not tremble at all. It even says in verse 11, whereas angels, though, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a, a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. They do not think that their sin would make them even praise of evil angels. They fear nobody, including God. They fear not even the demonic realm. They, they fear not even the angelic realm. They're, they're not afraid to blaspheme anybody or anyone at any time. They, they believe as though they are above everybody else. They are bold. They are willful. They are arrogant. Paul even says this to Timothy. He says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But look at, to the, look at this in Isaiah 66, 2, uh, of what the, the Lord does look at. He says this, but to this is to the one whom I will look. He who is what? Humble and contrite in spirit and what? And trembles at my word. The favor of the Lord is upon the one who, who trembles at my word, not the one, as it says here, who, who do not tremble. They blaspheme the Lord. In their pride and in their arrogance, they, they will not fall down and worship the one true God. They will not fall down and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They believe as though they are untouchable. I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can act however I want. I'm free in Christ, they would say, to live however I want. So what does Peter say in verse 12? Look what it says. It says this. But these, like what? 
like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. What's interesting here is he, he now starts talking about animals and, and really from the, the rest of this time all the way through, even to the end of verse 22, he kind of keeps this theme in our mind. Animals don't operate on reason. Animals operate on desires and feelings and instincts and not on reason. He said this is what the false teachers and the false prophets do. They're, they're acting like animals. They're, they're, they're acting on instinct. They're acting on desires. They, they operate on feeling. They're not operating on reason. When they teach and when they preach, they, they teach and preach not based on reason and knowledge of Scripture. They, they teach and preach based on feelings and desires. What do the people want? What is going to make them feel good? What's going to make them feel the right way? What, what can I do to pull on the right heartstrings? What kind of music can I have playing that'll kind of massage the heart a little bit to draw them in, to get them to like what's happening here, to get them to come back and enjoy the feeling absent from any reason at all? Absence from knowledge. Just this last week, I, I saw a pastor go up on stage. He, he turned around and faced this way. He sat down in front of a massive screen. He grabbed a Nintendo controller and he started playing Super Mario Brothers. I mean, we're not talking like a, a small, we're talking a massive gathering. I'm talking like a, a massive jumbotron. So I was playing Super Mario Brothers. He's like, come on, come on, church, look at me go. I'm like, what are we doing here? He then runs and jumps into the screen, and then he turns into the character, and he's the character on, on, on screen playing. And then he jumps out, and he starts doing some Super Mario rap with Luigi, who came up on stage with him. I know this sounds like I'm making this up. I promise you I am not. I saw another pastor in a, in a clip. He said, I want everybody to take a deep breath and breathe in the Holy Spirit. Is that even in our Bible? Where do you come up with stuff like that? The whole thing is, besides irreverent, it is illogical, sophomoric. It appeals only to the feelings. It's feeding off of fleshly desires. Apparently people like video games, so what are we going to do? We're going to bring them into the church, and we're going to play them in front. We're just going to have a good time playing video games together. Is there not any sort of expectation that when you go into church, you're going to hear from God? Is there not any expectation when you walk into church that there's some level of reverence, some level of respect, some level of, hey, I'm going to church, I should expect to hear from God this morning? Well, that takes effort. That takes engagement of the mind. Heaven forbid a pastor come up and engage your mind 
Engage your thinking. Engage uh, any sort of reason to get you to, to think clearly about who God is, but yet the false teachers would, wouldn't dare do that because that doesn't appeal to the flesh. Acting like animals. Peter is exactly right. Irrational. Operating on feelings and desire, not intellect, not knowledge. That's why Peter would say, verse 8, 13, or look at 3, 18, but what? Grow in what? Grow in grace and what? And knowledge. Grow in grace and knowledge. Of what? Of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These false teachers operate as irrational animals, yet they sound as if they're the most knowledgeable person in the room. Why? Because they're bold and willful and arrogant and conceited. So of course they're going to act like that. Well, look at the character. He goes on and he talks now about their character. And I just listed these off for you as we walk through them. What are they doing? What are they, how do they act? They're, they're those who take pleasure in their sin in the daylight. Verse 13, they have eyes full of adultery. They entice unsteady souls. They are greedy for gain, money, and fame. They are cursed. They have left the truth. They, they've traveled their own way. They're blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in, in their destruction. And Peter says, he makes it so clear, he says, they are accursed children. This is such graphic language, and, and I got to say, this is probably why most people don't preach Second Peter. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? Who, 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 in this day and age, a whole chapter? First Peter's great. It talks about suffering. It talks about how to, how to, how to deal with suffering. First Peter was great, and it's like, no, nah, we're not going to jump into Second Peter. We, well, if, we, if we do that... We gotta watch out for, for chapter two. There's some offensive language in there. Thomas Schreiner says this. He says, Peter wants to stab his readers awake so that they would take it seriously and repudiate the teachers. Stab his readers awake. I love that. Verse 14. They've wandered so far from the truth. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Like animals without boundaries, wandering on their own, false teachers have forsaken the way. They've created their own way, and their own way leads to destruction, as the Proverbs tell us. I think what's happened, church, is this, is that too many have began to tolerate false teaching and false preachers. We've just gone to the point where we just tolerate it. I've even heard, heard this said before, well, it's not all bad. That's your grid? It's not all bad? Don't you want all right? Don't you have a higher standard that, that you want all of it to be right? Well, it's not all bad. I'll, I'll just tolerate the parts where, where it's bad, and, and, I, and I'll tolerate this or that. And I, I think to myself, if you had a glass of water and you put one drop of poison in it, it's not all bad. Go ahead and drink, though. No, really, it's not all bad. I only put one drop to the, to the thousand other pure drops. I put one drop 
of poison in it. Are you, are you going to say it's not all bad and drink? No, what are you going to say? The whole thing is not going to be healthy for me. I need to find the purest. I'm sure if we look deep enough and we could find in false teachers and and false prophets, something good within them, but Peter wants to stab us awake so that we don't just tolerate it. We stand for truth. Peter wants us to defend truth. Peter wants us to teach the truth. Peter wants us to declare the truth. Peter wants us to love the truth. Peter doesn't want us to, to fall stray to these irrational animals who are, who are trying to entice you away from the purity of the gospel. He continues the illustration here of animals and even takes one out of the Old Testament. He's thinking, if there's only a good illustration about an animal, I'd pull it from the Old Testament. Well, he does. And he says this, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. Look, it says, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. A perfect example, a perfect illustration of the Old Testament where you have Balaam, who was a prophet who enticed people, the people of Israel, with prostitutes. He enticed the people of Israel with fornication and with adultery. His teaching, his teaching compromised the word of God. His teaching did not call people to holiness, but rather he called them to sin and idolatry. Balaam taught Israel to love the world. He taught them that the little sins didn't matter. He was a false teacher who seduced the world with financial gain, with sexual gain. He loved money. This is Balaam, and he gets on his donkey, and he, he starts going one way, and the donkey stops him and starts speaking to him. Just, just take that in for a second. You have a human acting like an animal, and now you have an animal acting like a human. Who's the irrational one? He says, you're going the wrong way. He stops him in his madness. Now, Balaam would keep going, and he would speak, continue to speak. He was a, a prophet for prophet, and because of that, 24,000 men followed his way, and they were cursed by God and killed, including Balaam. The donkey had better discernment than the prophet did. And the end result of such defiance and false teaching was that Balaam was eventually slain. And this is similarly true to what Peter is saying here, that judgment awaits false, false teachers and false prophets who are in it for gain, in it for money, in it for sexual gain. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 2 when when John is speaking there of the different churches in, in chapter 2, and verse 14, he says this, But I have a few things against you that some of you there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Those who follow the way of Balaam will be judged. And this is what he's saying. Number nine is this keep moving here. Their speech is without substance. Their speech is without substance because it's irrational, because they're acting irrationally, speaking irrationally without any reason. Verse 17, what does it say? These are what? 
waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter, utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In church, we know this. If you've heard a false teacher and a false prophet before, they're masters of communication. They're creative with their words. Many of them have writers for them to help them be creative with their words and their word choice to help manipulate the mind and manipulate the feelings. They know how to get the naive. They know how to get the vulnerable. They don't go after the mature Christians. They only go after the immature. And what does it say? It says what? They're waterless springs. There's no substance to their claims. There's no depth to their teaching. There's, there's no biblical foundation. And the word there for springs, it has this idea of a source that continually gushes out or continually flows all this water. It just keeps coming out of this spring. Figuratively, it's speaking then of, of this well, this spiritual well, where there's continual inner, inner, uh, inner nourishment that happens. And if you're parched, and if your soul is parched, and you see this oasis out in front of you, you would think that if I just get to that, it has for me the wells of water. It promises to me a drink. This is what these false prophets and these false teachers do. They, they promise a drink of spiritual water, but they produce to fail, or they, or they fail to produce it. However, God promises an ever-flowing source of water of life in the Word of God. It even says there, look at the description of their teaching. It's what? It's speaking loud boasts of folly. Loud boasts of folly. Continually feeding on the desires of man. Man-centered, culture-driven. And what they teach then is a salvation Listen, to, listen, church, they teach us salvation, but this salvation is deliverance from poverty. This salvation is deliverance from financial worries. This salvation is deliverance from sickness. And who wouldn't want to hear messages like that? No call to holiness, no call to repentance, prosperity messages that have to do with deliverance from this world, not deliverance from the next. And the message there, the false... Teachers is a promise of freedom. Look at verse 19. They, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. It's actually not freedom, it's bondage. John 4, 14 says this. Listen to the words of Jesus. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's only life in Christ. Well, the false prophets and false teachers say, hey, I've got, I've got freedom for you. You want freedom? And then they appeal to the flesh. You probably want freedom from, from financial worries, don't you? Let's talk about that. You probably want freedom from the health crisis that you're in. Let's talk about that. Freedom, 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 freedom from everything other than freedom from the bondage of sin that you are in. 
So they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, that is to which he is enslaved. You want to know one of the fastest growing religions in Africa is? The Pentecostal movement. You got a bunch of poor, malnourished people, and you got a preacher that comes in and says, hey, I can free you from this. Just give me a little bit of your money, and, and we'll make this happen. It doesn't surprise us, because look at what it, what, uh, what it says next. In verse 18, for speaking loud, most of folly, what do they do? They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who what? Are barely escaping from those who live in error. Which brings us to the next point, which is this. Their victims are the vulnerable. The victims are the vulnerable. They go after those who are naive. It says there they entice, they seduce, they lure. This word here, it has the idea of using bait on a trap to ensnare somebody. Like a fisherman baiting a hook. They entice always with bait. And the present tense indicative here that they live to entice others and draw them into a snare. They dangle the bait in front of you, hoping that you would bite on it, thinking that you will be free, when in fact it's a trap. They offer people a kind of religion that can embrace and still hold on to their fleshly desires and their sensuality. False teachers have no care for the truth, no care for the glory of God, no care for the work of the cross. They're in the business of luring, baiting, trapping. False teachers prey on the vulnerable and the naive. They exploit them. They use them for their own advantage. They lure away orphans, widows, single mothers, people in broken marriages, the hurting, the gullible, those who are trying to find their identity. This is who they're going after. And like I said, they don't entice mature Christians. Because mature Christians say, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's not right. That's not freedom. It's a trap. They seduce those, as it says there, who barely have escaped from the ones who live in error. The ones who are just right there at the point, wanting to come to Christ, wanting to know Christ, and then lured away. Lastly is this, the 11th feature of a false teacher will we'll end here is this, their corruption is controlling. Their corruption is controlling. Verse 19, for whatever overcomes a person, so that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. These false teachers may even at some point come to their senses a little bit, and they may say, hey, hey, wait a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not teach this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to what I know to be true, what I, what I know about who Jesus is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to that, and then, and then they're lured back into their own false teaching, and they keep going back and forth, and each time they do, it makes it worse for them. They're controlled by their corruption. 
They may even say uh, that they want to be set free. They even may, may have a message or two that, that sounds biblical. And, the, and you think to yourself, oh, this person's changed or, or this person's out of that, that kind of false teaching. And, and, they're, and they're going down another path, but then they go right back into it. They're sucked right back into it again. It says that they are entangled in them and overcome. And the last state has become worse for them than the first, verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Meaning this, the more you know about the truth of who God is, the more you will be judged for. And the more these false teachers go, go back to their corruption and they come out of it and they go, oh, wait, I know this to be true. I'm going to go away from it. And then they go back to it and they go back and forth. More and more will they be judged for their knowledge. They can't get out of it. Why? Because their corruption controls them. They never truly understood who Jesus Christ is. They never submitted to his authority in their life. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteous than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. And then he says this in the proverb, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. William, Bar Bar William Barclay says this. There's a couple of quotes here. He says, the teachers who were offering liberty when they themselves were slaves and the liberty they were offering was liberty to become slaves of lust. Their message was arrogant because it was contradiction of the message of Christ. It was futile because he who followed it would find himself a slave. Here again is the background, is the fundamental heresy which makes grace a justification for sin instead of a power and summons to nobility. And then he says this, Peter ends with contempt. These evil men are like dogs who return to their vomit, like a pig which has been scrubbed and then goes back to rolling in the mud. They have seen Christ but are so morally degraded by their own choice that they prefer to wallow in the depths of sin rather than to climb to the heights of virtue. It is a dreadful warning that a man can make himself such that in the end of the tentacles of sin are inextricably around him and virtue for him has lost its beauty." In an attempt potentially to stop teaching in their ways, they've been so overcome by their sin that they only clean themselves on the outside and then go right back to, as it says there, a dog returning to its own vomit. Peter closes out with that proverb. Dog returns to its own vomit. Pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is similar to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. If we go on sinfully willing after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice from sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. Peter doesn't exactly end with a message of hope. But we got to remember this, that when you read this letter, you, you, you don't read it chopped up like we do. You read it all in one setting. 
And as they would unroll the, the scroll, as they would sit down, maybe huddled in their homes or even huddled in the synagogue together or even hidden away because they didn't want Nero to know they were there and they would unroll the scroll of Second Peter and they'd read through this, understanding salvation, understanding the cross. And they'd read this chapter on those who are teaching and luring them away and they, they'd build up for them a stronger radar against them. And they would, they would get down and they read even all the way into chapter 3. They'd re, be reminded uh, of what it says in, in verse 9 that the, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. What does it say? Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. The hope even for Peter is the same that it is for everyone else, that all would come to repentance in Jesus Christ. The hope is not that all the people that we know that are luring people away would be judged for their sin, or all the people that we think are evil would be judged for our sin. Church, no, the mindset is this, is that those who are luring people away, we are begging the Lord to forgive them. We are begging of the Lord, don't judge them. They know not what they do, Lord. Forgive them. We take a look at our own heart and we ask ourselves this. Are we only washing ourselves on the outside? Are we like a pig who is, who is just rolling in the mud and we just, we just go and wash ourselves? We come back and we roll in the mud again. We, we take a look at ourselves and we thank the Lord for the patience he has with us. Because we can find ourselves right here in chapter 2. We can find ourselves right here as, as those who are like a dog returning back to our vomit. Church, this chapter is as much about you as it is a false teacher. And you're begging the Lord, as Peter does in chapter 3, for the patience of God upon your life. He gets into verse 14, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, verse 3, chapter 3, 14, verse 14, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as what? As salvation. May it never be, church, that we look at chapter 3 and we stand here and we say, oh, thank you, Lord. Get them. Avenge them. No, we look at chapter 2 and we read it with chapter 3 and we say, Lord, please be patient with them. And would you please soften and change their hearts? We don't look at them with disgust. We don't look at them down the end of our nose and think, ha, we're way better than you know. We look out at the false teachers and we beg of the Lord, forgive them. We, we, we look at that as I did that Super Mario thing, that whatever in the world that was. And I, and I look at that and my heart breaks. I actually was angry at the disrespect that was there, but it was not, Lord, judge them. It was, Lord, please soften their heart. They obviously can attain a crowd. How about we use that for the glory of God? Lord, soften those hearts. We don't want to be the judgmental church. We won't be the judgmental church. We'll be the ones that relied on the grace of God for our own salvation, and we rely on the grace of God for the salvation of others. At the same time, we balance that out with understanding this, that those who commit this 
they will be judged by God. We're not all love, and we're not all just grace. We understand that there's also wrath and judgment as well. We endeavor to find that perfect balance, as Peter does. So what does Peter then encourage us to do in chapter 3? This is what he encouraged us to do. Go back to the Word of God. That's his encouragement. Go back to the Word of God. Go back. He says, verse 3, remember the holy prophets and the commandments of life. That's where we go. We go back to Scripture and we ground ourselves here. Where there is Jesus Christ, who is what? Grace and truth. Fully grace, fully truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Every time we're confronted with more and more truth, and sometimes messages go down better than others, I I suppose, and sometimes the conviction is stronger than in other times. Sometimes we've just dozed off and didn't really hear anything. But we know this to be true, that your word will not return void. We know that it's doing a work on on our hearts. Lord, and we do pray that it's doing a softening work. As we read an entire chapter about the judgment and, and really the gloom and doom of false teachers, may our heart break. Our hearts break for the fact that judgment is coming upon them. Lord, we don't want to be arrogant in this. We don't want to be bold and willful. We want to be soft and tender and begging of the Lord to be patient working on our own hearts, not to be judgmental ourselves. At the same time, Lord, we thank you that in your perfect justice, you're going to do what is right. And you're going to judge sin because of your holiness, because you're a defender of the truth, because you're perfect. So, Lord, keep us in perfect balance there full of truth but full of grace and we thank you that we have your son Jesus Christ to look to that helps us in that regard not one of us here deserves salvation not one of us we are all under grace the undeserved favor of Jesus Christ and so our hearts should forever be thankful for what you have done for us. Help us, Lord, as we go out this week and balance these truths in our, in our hearts and in our minds. Make us aware of the false teachers and false preachers that are out there. Help us to grow in knowledge so that we're not naive and vulnerable. And help us along the way to be filled with grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.